Revelation 13, verses 1 through 18, give you to the reading of God's word this morning. John writes, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast To be slain also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, verse 9, it says what? If anyone has an ear, let him hear. So let's pray and ask God to help us with our hearing this morning that we might hear uh, what the Spirit says to the churches, even to us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for books like Daniel and even Revelation that we can find difficult to read uh, and sometimes not difficult to understand, but difficult to hear. And so we ask that you would give us ears to hear by the work of your spirit this morning that we might understand and and take to heart the message that you give to us, even to this church, here from this book. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, as we're going through this book and we're trying to go in large sections, a chapter at a time when, when feasible, you might notice a pattern in the last few chapters. In chapter 11, you have a vision of two witnesses. In the previous chapter, you have a vision of two signs in heaven, the the woman and the dragon, 
And now we have a vision of two beasts here in chapter 13. Last Sunday, if you were here, we looked at chapter 12 of Revelation, and there John tells us of a vision he had that he was given of two, the word he uses was signs or symbols in heaven. Now, what was the first sign that he saw in his vision? It was verse 1, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. This woman was also pregnant, and she was in labor, and was to give birth to, quote, a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, Revelation 12.5. That male child, of course, is none other than Jesus Christ our Lord. The pregnant woman's male child is a symbol of the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3.15. We looked at that last Sunday, where God promised that the offspring or seed of the woman, and who was that seed? The Christ who was to come was going to be the one to crush the serpent's head. He was going to be the champion for God's people to save us from that serpent. The second sign in in that last chapter, in chapter 12, the second sign that John saw in heaven was a much different sign. It was of a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems, verse 3. And that dragon is portrayed as being immensely powerful and evil. And John, by, by the inspiration of the Spirit, identifies us for us in that text who that dragon is. What does he say in verse 9? He calls him, quote, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So who is the dragon in, in chapter 12? The, the dragon in chapter 12 is the devil himself. That's what he represents. It's not what he looks like, it's what he is like. That's the reason for it being given in a a symbol or a sign in that vision. And what was the devil's aim in that vision in the previous chapter? What was his goal as, as as it pertained to the woman's child? His goal was to, quote, in verse 4, to, quote, devour the child as it was born. The dragon wanted to devour and kill that child. His goal, what, why did he want to do that? What was his goal? His goal was to, at all costs, prevent the coming of Christ. His goal was to prevent the coming of Christ. We saw last Lord's Day that in some ways, maybe always, this explains the persecution you see against God's people all through the Old Testament. That that, that satanic hatred and goal of stopping the Christ from coming That's what really lie behind all of those things you read of in the Old Testament. That's why Pharaoh tried to kill the Israelites. It's why Esau hated Jacob. It's why all these different things happened in the Old Testament. It was a a, an ongoing part of that war between the serpent and the woman, trying to prevent her seed, who is the Christ, from coming. That same that same thing is echoed in our own day as well. Why do you see the church in all kinds of places on this earth persecuted and crushed down and vexed and even have many Christians in our day as well, not just ancient history, many believers in our day are killed for professing the name of Christ? Why is that? Why does any earthly government care about the Christian church? Now, our church is rather small, right? But even the biggest church on this earth, why would would any government care about the Christian church, about Christ's people? What do we do that hurts anything? What did Jesus do that hurt anything? All he ever did was do good and heal people and and treat them with love, and yet 
Uh, he was he was hung on a cross. Well, the, the reason behind all that is a satanically inspired hatred for Christ and his people. Satan hates the Christ. He couldn't keep him from coming, but he sees an echo of his image in his people. We are the body of Christ, and so what does Satan do? He attacks the church. The devil persecuted and attacked the church in the Old Testament in order to prevent the Christ from coming, and having failed to prevent Christ from coming to save his elect, he now vents that same wrath in persecuting the church in the New Testament age. Verse 17 of chapter 12 says that he went to make war on, quote, the rest of her offspring. Who is the rest of the woman's offspring in that vision? You are. We are. God's people in Christ are the rest of her offspring. And so in chapter 12, what is John doing for us here? He's giving us in this vision a glimpse behind the scenes. It's kind of a pulling back of the curtain, so to speak. The vision of the woman and the dragon was was given in order to help you and I understand why things are the way they are in this world of sin and misery. If you think about it, nothing else really makes sense of the wicked and evil and violent persecution against the church that the church has so often endured throughout history and even continuing into our own day. Why, why does it happen? It happens because it's literally of satanic origin. That's the only thing that can really explain it. What does Paul say we saw last week? In Ephesians 6.12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, he tells us, put on the whole armor of God, and he describes it piece by piece. And why do you and I need to put on the armor of God? Not just outward physical armor, that would look funny, but it's not a physical fight. He says, put on the armor of God because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Earthly armor would do no good. The enemy that we are fighting is of a much stronger stripe than we would fight in an earthly fight. Well, now we come to chapter 13, which speaks of two beasts. It talks about two beasts, the first and the second. It talks about the mark of the beast in verses 16 to 17. It even talks about in verse 18... One of those things that's been the subject of much uh, debate and confusion, the number of the beast. And these things have, of course, uh, all of these things have been the subject of much much speculation and confusion over the years, and uh, we'll try to dispel some of that this morning. At the end of chapter 12, we're told that the dragon went off to make war on the church. Well, now in chapter 13, what John shows us is, according to one writer, it says, we are introduced to the two agents through whom Satan carries out his war against believers. So in other words, John is continuing the same thing, the same theme here in chapter 13 that he began in chapter 12. At the end of chapter 12, we're told that Satan, the dragon, went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Well, now we're going to find out what that looks like. What what are the instruments or the weapons of his warfare that he uses against the rest of her offspring, which is the church? And what are those instruments? What does he use in his combat against the gospel of Jesus Christ and against the church of Jesus Christ? What are his instruments or weapons of his warfare? In that great book by William Hendrickson, which I recommend to you, if you want to understand Revelation much better, William Hendrickson, his book More Than Conquerors, I think you would find that very helpful. He writes this about these two beasts in Revelation 13. He says, 
The first represents the persecuting power of Satan operating in and through the nations of this world and their governments. The second symbolizes the false religions and philosophies of this world. Both these beasts oppose the church throughout this dispensation, yet the apostle describes them in terms that indicate the form which they assumed during the closing decade of the first century A.D. Did you catch that, though? These beasts oppose the church throughout this dispensation. In other words, right now, the same two beasts, we don't see them as they're in this vision, but we we face the same two soldiers or weapons of, of Satan's warfare against the church today that they did in John's day in the first century. And what's the takeaway? What's what's the application of this chapter? There is an application, there always is, to God's truth. And that's found mostly in verse 10, where John writes, Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This chapter of Revelation, much like Daniel 7, is given to us to prepare us, to prepare you and me to endure in the faith. So this morning, Lord willing, we're going to look at what our text has to say about each of those two beasts in turn and in order. And then, Lord willing, we're going to offer some points of application regarding that call for endurance and faith of the saints here in our chapter. John says in verse 9, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. So may the Lord grant it to us that we might, each of us, have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying, not just to the churches in general, but to, to us in particular. Well, the first beast is spoken of in verses 1 through 8. Look at the first two verses of our chapter. It says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Notice Notice first that this beast, this first beast from the sea, who does he resemble from chapter 12? He sounds almost identical to the dragon with these different heads and horns and crowns and all these things. In Revelation 12.3, it says that that the dragon, who is Satan, what? Had seven heads and ten horns. What does the first beast have? Seven heads and ten horns. This vision also combines the features of those four beasts we read about back in Daniel chapter 7. Remember in Daniel 7, verses uh, verse 3, he said he had a vision of four great beasts coming up out of where? Out of the sea. Same, same thing. And in Daniel 7, 4 through 7, listen to what he writes there again. He describes those four beasts. He says, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Behold, another beast, a second one like a, this time it was a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces, and it stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So you have John 
I'm, I'm sure self-consciously knowing, but this was the vision he was given. This vision combines all of those four beasts from Daniel 7 into one awful, horrifying beast. Now in Daniel 7, Daniel tells us what those four beasts represented, right? It says that they represent four powerful nations or kings rising in succession one after the other, perhaps the most most common, and I think it's the right interpretation of those four beasts in Daniel, is that those four beasts represent in order Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire that came after Babylon, the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, and then at last Rome. Now Daniel, remember what we said this morning, what was the circumstance in which Daniel prophesied? Where was Daniel? What was his personal uh, what were his personal circumstances? He was prophesying during the Babylonian captivity of Judah. So he wasn't prophesying leading up to it as some of the other prophets were. He was right in the middle of it. He himself was carried off into captivity. And just the fact that he continued to serve and prophesy should be an encouragement to you and me. God didn't stop talking to his people when they were in captivity. He did not stop ministering his word to them. He gave his word through the prophet Daniel. Now that was a time, obviously, of great suffering for the church in the Old Testament. Daniel's prophecy, what was it given for? What what was the purpose of Daniel's prophecy? It was given in order to comfort and strengthen God's people and prepare them to remain faithful and to endure, to give them hope for what God's purposes were for their future. It didn't look good at the time. It didn't feel good at the time. Nothing looked or felt good at all. They were away from home. They were away from the temple, and yet God was not done with them. He was still with them, even in their captivity. Now, it doesn't take, I don't think, much effort uh, to see the parallels between that and what we find in the experience of the early church. And even in the church in our own day as well. In fact, the Apostle Peter, you might know, uh, tells us in his letter, his first letter, that we are also exiles in this world. This world of sin and misery is not your true home. We have a lot of good things in this life. I think we enjoy many good gifts in this life, but this, this, this world is not your home. As good as it, on your best day, this world is not your home. And in his first epistle, the apostle Peter, he addresses that letter to quote the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. A dispersion, what does it, what does it imply? That God's people have been scattered away from home. Now his first recipients of that letter may have been literal exiles, but he's saying, if you're a Christian, you're an exile. You're not at home here. And look what he says in 1 Peter 1, 17 to 19. He says, conduct yourselves with fear, how or when? Throughout the time of your exile. You're in exile, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Brothers and sisters, not only is this world of sin and misery not your true home, but because of that, God's people will often suffer bitter persecution at the hands of wicked rulers and governments. And we have to conduct ourselves, as Peter says, with fear throughout the time of our exile. 
Notice in John's vision in our text in chapter 13, again, those four beasts that Daniel talks about, John combines them, or, or Christ combines them, to create one horrific, monstrous beast. You know, in, in John's day, who would that be? What government would, would John have been having in mind and talking about? It would have been the same one that put him in exile on Patmos, the Roman, the Roman government. He was talking about, in, in, in their day at least, Rome. Now, Rome was a great and powerful empire which conquered many nations and peoples. And in fact, in the first century, they considered Rome to have conquered the entire inhabited world. There were other peoples they hadn't conquered yet, but the, the civilized world was the world under Roman control. They thought they had conquered everything. And Rome's history, you might know, is filled filled with wicked rulers and emperors, some of whom violently persecuted Christians, to say the least. Now, where does this first beast that we read of in John in John's vision here in chapter 13, where does the first beast get its authority and power from? Look at verse 2, he says, And to, to it the dragon, that's Satan, to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Now, God is still sovereign over all these things. No earthly nation or king rises to power without it being a part of God's plan and God being sovereign over it. But God is sovereign over all these things. But we are to understand that this persecution by these powerful state governments is is satanic in origin. Where does it come from? Where do they get their power, at least in a secondary sense, from Satan himself? And how bad is it? How bad would it get at times? How bad did John's first readers have to know ahead of time it was going to get in short order? Look at verses 5 through 8. John says, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. There's that time period again and again and again. You, you know, you, you may have read and may read in some, in some places, uh, many making a, a large deal out of three and a half years and the tribulation and all these things, Revelation uses that time frame, that 42 months, 1260 days, so many times, I don't know how anybody could pin it down to one specific thing. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a figure of time meant to indicate this entire age, that the suffering of God's church, however real and terrible it is, is limited, and the long-term thing is God's kingdom when Christ returns. But it says, 42 months, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. That points back to the end of chapter 12. It also points back to Daniel 7. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. That's a really good description of first century Rome, especially late first century Rome. What did the emperors want you to do? Not just worship Rome, worship the emperor. And say so the emperor is Lord. Well, what could Christians not do? Say that the emperor is Lord because who's Lord? Jesus is Lord. And so these, these kings, these empires, these earthly rulers, they uttered prideful and blasphemous words. Uh, how many wicked rulers and nations have done such things? Not just Rome, but 
other nations and rulers as well. How many, how many rulers seem to think throughout history that they are practically gods? You could think of many in the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union. You could think of other places. They put statues up to themselves. They practically demand worship of the state and of themselves. They, they have the power of life and death, death over their subjects. And they, they use that power to keep their power. How many people today, even today, who reject Jesus Christ seem to worship at the altar of the almighty state? As if, as if the government of their state, of their country, is seemingly all-knowing, all-wise, and all-powerful. How many in our own country? I won't even say the party, but how many in our own country? You know, we've had a, a, a convention, a, a national convention in, in politics a number of years ago where they booed God. Literally booed God. But they want the government to have all the power and control. Who are they worshiping? It doesn't take much to figure that out. They don't worship God, they worship the state. Who is the state? It's just people. Why do they do that? I think that is also satanic in origin. Have you, have you ever noticed how totalitarian governments always seem to oppose God? I can't think of one that doesn't or didn't. Why is that? I think it's because they can't stand the competition. Wicked rulers can't bear the thought that there could be a God who has ultimate power and authority even over them, and also that there could be a God to whom their own citizens owe a higher allegiance than them. That vexes some people who have aspirations of being gods. What is our attitude as Christians to be to such wicked governments and rulers? That's a tough question. I can't begin to answer that question at length this morning. Uh, it's a complex question, but a few simple points I think have to be observed here with regard even to our text. The first thing is, as Christians, we are to be good citizens. You could say we're to be the best citizens. We are to, as Paul says in Romans 13, we are to submit to the governing authorities as much as we can. Romans 13.1, Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by whom? God. He doesn't just say good governments. He doesn't just say good authorities or authorities that you happen to agree with or authorities that you happen to like. Most of them we're not going to like. I'm, I dare say I'm guessing Paul didn't love the Roman government. Paul died at the hands of that same Roman government under Nero in the, in the middle of the first century in A.D. 63 or 64, somewhere around there. He was beheaded for doing nothing wrong but preaching the gospel. That was what his crime essentially was. But we are to submit to the government, governing authorities because God put them there. So Christians are not to be rebels or anarchists. But there's a limit to that, isn't there? There is a God-given limit to this submission, isn't there? The Apostle Peter says in Acts 5.29 that we must obey God rather than men. Brothers and sisters, when the state, and I'm not saying this happens all the time, but when the state forbids something that God commands, God must be obeyed rather than men. When the state commands something that God himself forbids, you and I likewise must choose to obey God rather than men. And we must be willing to pay the price for that obedience. Sometimes there is a price to be paid for that. It can be costly. But as Peter says 
In 1 Peter 4.19, he says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In other words, if God commands something or if God forbids something, we obey what he says. And when you do that, even if you know there might might come a price to be paid for it, we trust God that he knows what he's doing. We don't say, well, if if I obey God at this particular point, something bad is going to come my way. As if God doesn't know that already. As if God is not in control of that. As if, remember what, what Jesus says, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Nothing will come your way except for through the will of God and by his hand. And he will bring good to you out of it and bring glory to the name of Christ through it. Well, that brings us to the second beast in our text in this vision that John describes basically in the second half of the chapter, chapter 13. In verses 11 to 12, John says this, Then I saw another beast rising out of not the sea, but where? Rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. You know, at first blush, at first glance, he doesn't describe too much about it, The second beast doesn't seem so harmful, does it? The first beast, when you read about it, it kind of makes you almost lean back in your chair, like back away from what you're reading. It sounds awful. It sounds terrifying. The second one has two horns like a, not just a sheep, but a lamb. Two horns like a lamb. And you could say that in many ways, these things uh, show a tendency with the evil ones to try to counterfeit things about God. This is probably, in, in some way, a counterfeit lamb of God. And yet, how does this lamb that looks so innocent speak? It seems so harmless, but it speaks, quote, verse 1, or it speaks like a dragon. Verse 11, that is. Appearances can be deceiving. And the scriptures tell us the same kind of thing. It says in Second Corinthians 11, verses 14 to 15, Paul says, even Satan does what? Disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise, Paul says, if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. In other words, God will give them what what they have coming. But for the the time being, uh, the the serpent's servants disguise themselves as as if they were angels of light and servants of righteousness. Now, what's the weapon of choice of this second beast? It's not state-sponsored persecution. It's it's deception. Verse 14, John says, the second beast does what? Deceives those who dwell on earth. In this way, this beast also reflects the nature of the dragon. Remember uh, Revelation 12, 9, it calls Satan what? The deceiver of the whole world. So he uses intimidation and persecution with the first beast, and he uses deception with the second one. And notice the way these two beasts work together. What does the second beast do? He deceives people to get them to worship the first beast and the dragon himself. Wicked governments and rulers, you know, they often oppose the the gospel, they often oppose the church and, and true religion, but they seem to have no problem working hand in hand with false religions and atheistic philosophies, especially when it comes to uh, opposing the church. You know, the, the enemy of your enemy is your friend, so to speak. Well, that's the way that wicked governments and false religions tend to work. 
They have one enemy that they they share in common. It's Jesus Christ. And so they at times, because of Satan and Satan's influence, have no problem joining together in opposing Christ and persecuting his people. Now you can probably think of some pretty easy examples of that very thing. Think about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ our Lord. Who was responsible for the crucifixion of Christ, humanly speaking? Was it not both the unbelieving Jewish religious leaders and the Roman government working together? That's how he was killed. Both had a hand in his murder and execution. Now those two groups are not usually big fans of each other. The Roman government and the Jewish people were not uh, on very good terms. Uh, But their satanically inspired hatred of Christ and his people was the one thing that brought them together, for a time at least. And the same thing has often been true throughout the history of the church and the history of the world as well. Think about the persecution of the Protestant reformers and both those who came before them and those who came after them. In Europe was their persecution, including many being martyred, burned at the stake in some cases. Was that not at both the hands of the Roman Catholic Church and the various kings and queens in power at the time? Evil, wicked civil government and false religion combine to persecute the church and to try to stamp out the gospel of Christ, and of course they can't, can't do it. We must be on guard against false teaching. It's not without reason that the, the Bible likens false teachers to wolves in sheep's clothing, Jesus calls them. Matthew 7.15, Paul calls them, same kind of imagery, savage wolves. They might look like sheep, they're in sheep's clothing, they don't look dangerous, But they are. False teaching is not harmless. Atheistic philosophies are not harmless. Someone has said there are consequences to ideas. Well, you can see the consequences of of atheistic ideas in the history of our world in the last few centuries, to say the least. We have to beware of Satan's deceptions. And as our text tells us that those, you know, resisting or defying these deceptive temptations to worship the state can bring consequences, even martyrdom. We have to watch and be on guard against these things. Now, no less a biblical scholar than the one I mentioned already, William Hendrickson, says that this latter half of chapter 13 is, is he, he says, quote, perhaps the most difficult paragraph in the entire book of Revelation. I keep reading statements like it as I'm getting ready to preach, and I think, oh, why didn't I pick an easier book? You know. So a bit of caution and humility is probably in order here, but I think a few basic points can be made. So I may not solve all of your questions or answer all of your questions on these things, but we can get a few things straight, and that might be of great help. Uh, the mark of the beast in verses 16 to 17. Now, some have understood this and have said that this is a literal outward mark, I remember reading, I think it was Hal Lindsey talked about a barcode being stamped on your forehead and things like that. Uh, I don't believe that's what this is uh, teaching us. Uh, It's not an outward mark at all. Remember, this is a vision. It's uh, teaching things through signs and symbols. That mark is another counterfeit. That mark is a counterfeit of Satan's, it's Satan's copycat version of the seal of the living God that we saw back in chapter 7. Remember the 144,000, the church militant, was sealed on their foreheads with the seal of the living God, and none of them would be lost uh, as they fought for Christ on this earth. Well, this is Satan's copycat version of it, and it's placed on the foreheads of his servants on this earth. Uh, and what's, what is a seal? What is, that, what is that mark? What is a mark intended to do or convey? It conveys ownership. Who do they belong to? They belong to the beast. Who do they serve? They serve the beast. It's like 
Christ has his kingdom and has his servants sealed, and Satan is kind of in his old copycat fake way saying, look, I've got mine too, and mine have my mark on them. What about the number of the beast in verse 18? You know, verse 17 tells us the mark of the beast is, quote, the name of the beast or the number of its name. So it sounds like a puzzle, right? It sounds like something we're supposed to uh, figure out. Now, it may or may not have at least some reference to Caesar Nero. There are some who have broken down the numeric value of his name. Uh, I think they do it in Hebrew, not Greek, which I don't know why they would have to do that to make that work. But uh, they, so there is some, there are some who believe this is a reference to Caesar Nero, and it would certainly match his description as far as the way he opposed the church and persecuted Christ's people. Some say his, the numerical sum of his name adds up to 666. Uh, either way, it's a number of man or a number of a man, uh, and it's a number that falls short of perfection. Remember the number seven, all through Revelation is this number of perfection. Uh, whenever you see God at work, it seems like you have this number seven coming up again and again in the book. And Henriksen writes helpfully here, he says, let us remember that the number of the beast is the number of man. Six means missing the mark or failure. Seven means perfection or victory. Rejoice, O church of God, the victory is on your side. The number of the beast, that is, 666, that is, failure upon failure upon failure. He doesn't accomplish his objectives. So we as the church, as Hendrickson says, we have good reason, you have good reason to rejoice and good reason to endure. And that brings us to the last point, which is the point of application that's pointed to us in our text Look at verse 18. It says that everyone, everyone who dwells on the earth, that's in Revelation, that is typically a, a way of speaking of the wicked. It's, it's not talking about every, literally everyone on earth because he distinguishes a different group from them, doesn't he? Uh, everyone on earth, the wicked or unbelievers, will worship the beast and worship Satan. But who does he say specifically are not going to do that? Who are the ones that will not worship the beast, look again at verse 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, the beast, everyone whose name has what? Not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. It's going to look like everybody's worshiping the first beast, the, the atheistic, godless state government. But who doesn't worship the beast? You have to kind of almost read it backwards a little bit. Everyone whose name has been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. The Lord Jesus Christ will not lose any of those whom he came to save. The dragon and his beasts may do their worst to intimidate and deceive, but those whose names have been written before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life are safe from harm. That's the message that we're getting here in this chapter. Notice how here we're appointed to something that you might not have expected. You know, we, we Presbyterians, and I in particular, I'm sure you know, we talk about election a lot. We talk about predestination and God's sovereignty, and that's not for no reason. But here in this text, we are appointed to the doctrine of election and predestination in order to comfort and encourage, and encourage us to endure in the faith. What God himself, according to this verse, has decreed for our salvation cannot be undone. If your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world in God's decree, nothing can undo it. What God himself has written in the Lamb's Book of Life, in other words, 
your name. If God has written your name in his book, the, in, the, in the book of life before the foundation of the world, your name cannot be erased, and it will not be erased. And the purchased possession of the lamb who was slain for our salvation cannot be lost. That is what that verse in verse 8 is teaching. That is why you and I are called and exhorted in this chapter in verse 10 to endure in the faith, even in the face of captivity and sword. He says, what does he say? If anyone is to be taken captive, verse 10, to captivity he goes. That happens to Christians in this life. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. And yet here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. God will lose none of his own. You will lose nothing in your obedience and faithfulness to Christ. So verse 9 says, you know, verse 9 tells us, whoever has an ear to hear, let us have an ear to hear and heed the call for endurance and faith of the saints. No matter what the evil one sends our way through those twin beasts of intimidation, uh, of wicked rulers and the deception of false teachers and philosophies, we can and must endure in the faith for our victory is sure and certain in Christ, and we shall be, as Paul says in Romans 8, more than conquerors in him through Christ. Let's pray.